Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Today joining us, we have Dr. Robert Pennington. Hi, Rob. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going so good. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Um, Do you mind starting off with a bio or introduction of yourself for our listeners? Yeah, no problem. So I'm Rob Pennington. I'm a... um, faculty at UNC Charlotte uh, in the Department of Special Education. This is about my 30th year of working with individuals with developmental disabilities. Actually, I started even before that, I guess. I was a peer tutor in fifth grade and uh, had an opportunity to work with some uh, young children with developmental disabilities next door. And my dad was a teacher at that time, and um, I decided that I was going to be a teacher. And then during in high school, my dad quit teaching and told me not to teacher and like any good uh, skate punk that I was um, I said screw you dad I'm gonna teach uh, no nah, I didn't say it. I didn't say it that way but yeah I continued teaching I started working with families when I was about 18 or 19 working in their homes did some picture exchange with a little two-year-old and then uh, did all sorts of respite work and uh, tutoring and I taught in middle school uh, classroom for kids with severe disabilities did that for a while and then was uh, rat- pulled out of the classroom to serve um, a group of kids whose families were advocating for full inclusion. These kids were all had autism and uh, received, receiving home therapy. And in the early 90s, it was mostly folks from Lovas Center and from CARD flying out to Kentucky. Um, started working with those families, which really turned me on to behavior analysis, I think. Um, then I uh, got tired of working with the adults because that job was really uh, involved a lot of uh, mentoring of uh, teachers that had a lot more experience than I had. And so what I learned is that I was pretty good at working with kids, but it was really difficult to change teachers' behavior. Um, and then I went to Colorado, taught a classroom of kids with elementary age kids with uh, severe disabilities. About, I think 11 of them had autism. And then I went to, came back to Kentucky I worked in schools for a long time. And around 2006, I was recruited to the University of Kentucky. I know it's a lot of information, but uh, uh, so I was recruited by John Schuster, and he is the guy known for kind of simultaneous prompting. Fantastic person. I studied with him, Belva Collins, Don Stenhoff, and several other folks, and upon graduation, went to the University of Louisville. Was there for about eight years. Loved it. Great program there. Uh, Eric and Molly Dubuque are there. Ginevra Cortate is there. Terry Scott, Monica Delano, a lot of great folks. Studied with them, worked there developed a uh, BCBA program there. Uh, and then, you know, like any good behavior analyst, I realized my world needed to change a little bit for me to grow. And so I, that time I received a, a solicitation to maybe apply for this uh, endowed position at UNC Charlotte, and I was lucky enough to get it. So now I'm here in another behavioral special ed department. We just started a, a BCBA program this year um, and just working with some really fantastic people. So that's, uh, kind of, I guess, my story. I do a bunch of other things. And now I'm talking to you. (laughs) I've worked all the way up to get to talk to you, Amanda. (laughs) Well, I think that's a sequential thing, not a a status thing. Um, (laughs) Rob, it's really impressive to hear all the work that you've done. And I imagine for you, it's just you following your path and continuing to respond to your environment. But Mm -hmm. contributions to our field um, you know, thanks. Now, I don't think a lot of people get a chance to kind of 
hear from all of these great players. And so I appreciate you being on the show today. Um, something that was really interesting to me as you were going through your bio here is that you have had experience in multiple different states. And um, I have a little bit of that experience too, but primarily Massachusetts to Hawaii. And I can show the, the differences and somewhat of the similarities, but I think you have a little bit more of uh, data points than me to make some uh, connections. And I'm wondering if you could speak to some of the similarities or the differences across working with teachers in different states. Yeah, so I've done a lot of work. Um, when I, for a while, I directed our Kentucky Autism Training Center in Kentucky. And so we worked with schools in all sorts of districts. So urban schools to our more rural counties. I've worked here in North Carolina, uh, as you said, in Colorado. And then I've done a lot of uh, professional development and training in other states. And so a couple of common things that I've noticed is that one, I, I believe that most teachers want to do the right thing, right? Uh, I was talking to my undergraduates this week. So it's first year of classes and I get to teach a behavior management class undergrads, which I'm pretty kind of psyched about. Usually I teach graduate courses, but I told them, I said, you know what? Um, a lot of you guys are going to be mediocre and some of you are not going to be very good. And a few of you are going to be really good. And they were kind of, you know, shocked for me to say that. So we, you know, we had a little discussion as to why that happens in schools and maybe tried to bolster, give them some strategies to bolster against that happening. But I think most no teacher starts out because they want to not be good at what they're doing. Um, and I think that's really important to understand. I think that people, teachers' frustrations and sometimes their lack of success is usually due to poor training. And that kind of is this, the second thing. Um, there's a lot of variability in the quality of teachers, um, our training program. So you are seeing an increased number of our um, changes in programs across states. So we're seeing a model where we are trying to uh, get people through their teacher prep programs as quickly as possible to compete with online programs and also because of the massive shortages in teaching. So let policymakers, legislators have kind of uh, tackled this issue by trying to get people into the classroom as quickly as possible. And so usually what we're seeing are kids with severe disabilities and other, and other classroom positions often served by people with the least training. So these are folks that maybe have another degree of some sort, they took a praxis test and now they're deemed to teach or they have an online and uh, a program um, or like a two-year program where they're getting classes as they go. And those first couple of years are really hard. Um, and, I, and, and I have seen some folks uh, really excel in those models, teachers and do a really great job, but I've also seen a lot of folks fall down. And so, one, so kind of review, one, teachers really want to do a good job, I think, in most cases. And number two is that we're seeing a lot of variability in programs because this trend in terms of uh, lack of quality of training. The other thing that I think is happening and, and does happen to all of us, even behavior analysts, I mean, anyone in every field, is our special ed teachers will go maybe get some strong behavioral training. They might have gone to a research university or a program with strong faculty and strong training, and they go into their classrooms and most general ed strategies, right, that our general educators are using um, are very different. And so what happens is we barely get them to acquisition in their training programs. Most of the time we don't. They end up, they get out into these environments where there is insufficient coaching support or sometimes uh, contingencies that kind of shape their behaviors away from those good practices. So I see that across all these states. And uh, again, 
want to highlight that I think that I see a lot of wonderful teachers out there, but I also see just as uh, many struggling teachers that aren't sure what they're, what they're doing. And so I think those are some, some consistent things. Uh, I'll say one other thing quickly um, is I still think, and uh, uh, this is hypocritical because I think that sometimes I get invited out to do PD, but we still do a lot of kind of these catch up PDs where we swing in for a little bit of time. We talk to them about some principles uh, and then we go out and there's no coaching. And again, they're going to go right back into those environments that aren't going to support those feedback. Um, and I'm not sure what the, what the fix is, uh, but that's one of the trends that I'm seeing. I think it's a big issue in terms of us, especially those behavior analysts that are interested in special education. How do we um, tackle this problem and how do we make things better for these persons that, uh, and, and the students that they're serving? Well, you said the next thing that I was going to ask, which is how do we intervene or what's the next step or, um, and I think, you know, you've talked on some of the concerns and some of the trends that are plaguing our schools as systems. Um, it's, it's not even how much a teacher wants to do the right thing or how, in some cases, how well they're trained. If they're not in a system that has those supports and reinforcements, it's going to be very difficult for them to succeed. Um, but do you have some strategies or things that maybe you've learned or just general tips you would say, hey, when you're walking to a classroom um, and maybe you have some experiences in classrooms, but maybe you haven't kind of encountered, uh, maybe somebody hasn't encountered all of these things, like what would you want to make sure that they knew as a behavior analyst uh, walking into a situation like that? You know, I think first it's really important for us to remember that we are behavior analysts. And I joke a lot about the part-time lover, the, the behavior analyst that's really um, tuned into what a child needs, but then we forget what adults need. We make some assumptions about their learning history that, you know, don't usually pan out. So when I think about my work in classrooms, and again, I've probably been in hundreds of classrooms at this time, and, you know, I've been uh, equally not successful as I have been more successful, but I think I've been more successful as I've moved later in my career. Cause I think a little bit, I've thought a little bit more uh, prescriptive in terms of how to provide support. So one, I think it's really important that we understand where teachers are. We understand that teachers, you know, um, some, some teachers have master's degrees. Some teachers have a great deal of experience. They just may not be in, as focused in some of the areas to which uh, behavior analysts have training. So I think first respecting what people bring to the table is important. Number two, I think it's really important for us to engage in pairing activities. So, you know, the history of a teacher's uh, confrontation with somebody in the classroom, somebody coming in to see them is usually because something's not working well. And usually what happens, they have this history of consultation where somebody comes in, they look at their classroom, they tell them not what's working well, they give them a list, they may give them some steps to fix it, and they come back and hope that the teachers fixed it. And again, that's not really how good instruction works. So what, the, so what has happened now is, is consult, the, the consultant themselves, the person they're charged with helping the teacher has already been paired with punishing um, contingencies. And so you've got to come in and build, uh, I guess, build a relationship or essentially just pair. So we, we're doing a federal grant right now. And the first thing that we did, it's a big coaching grant, is we sent our team into classrooms uh, for visits. And the visits, we were to give no feedback except for positive feedback. 
We told them we just wanted to come in, see how the class operated, and then our folks had to give positive statements. They had to really look for them, uh, but no corrective feedback, no feedback on the uh, on how they would change their program. So we kind of it's kind of a new approach. We're just in the beginning of this program of this grant, so it'll be interesting to see uh, to get some feedback on what the, how the teachers perceive that. The other thing is I think that, and this is in our wheelhouse, and I think that the, um, I think we're increasingly in, in tuned or making sure that we uh, engage in this activity is that we actually do role play. And I think that's really important as well. So we're using the whole behavior skills training module, uh, our model. Uh, we're making sure that teachers uh, get back to uh, get up to acquisition. We don't assume that because they're teachers, they should know how to do something. But again, to get somebody engaged in that behavior skills training process, especially when most of us aren't in a position where we hold uh, hiring or firing contingencies, we really have to build rapport with them. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important is that we don't, I, I feel like I'm giving you a, a long list here, Amanda, so just stop me when you have, want to interrupt. The other thing I think is really important is that we really, um, is that we're good at assessing the classroom or assessing an, a teacher's repertoire. So just like an IEP for students, you know, we can't, uh, and I think it's more important with adults, as we can't select everything in their repertoire. We have to think of those behaviors that will make the most impact first and then move from that. So a couple of years ago, uh, we were working in lots of classrooms throughout the state. And so I developed this uh, classroom observation tool. We quality indicator sheet, we go through it, we observe classroom about an hour and a half. And then from that, we select no more than three targets that we want to change. And with those targets, we actually write behavioral objectives. And so instead of saying, I think you need to do better, we're going to say, well, you know what, your, your rate of uh, positive feedback is this. And we'd like to see it this. You think that's doable? We work with the teacher and we write a measurable objective. And so then it's not this, um, it's not the, the consultant saying, oh, I approve of what you're doing. It's actually looking at data and saying, okay, this is where we were. When I came and observed, you were at this level. And this is a little bit more uh, we see in the research studies, but I don't see it as much in practice. And that's a problem because, of course, our research studies, right, are under these controlled conditions. So we're not sure how this works across all teachers um, uh, in terms of this kind of continuous data collection method. So I think we need more investigations of it. It's something we're actually going to work on this fall here at uh, UNC Charlotte. And then we need to think of all those other wonderful strategies like that Florence De Janeiro read and, and other colleagues have done like dynamic fading. So we're going to set you at this level. And if you get to 80% uh, of fidelity on this particular procedure, then I'm not going to come out anymore for a while. Right. But if you can't, then I'm going to increase the rate because I'm going to increase the rate of feedback or coaching to you. And no matter how often, no matter how much we think individuals love us observing them and working with them, the reality is that they don't want us in their classroom. They're busy. You know, we're just another thing they have to do. So that's a very powerful contingency and a good negative reinforcement set up there that we can, um, you know, fade ourselves contingent on them staying at high levels of fidelity. So I think those types of practices, I mean, really what I just described is common for us working with children, but I don't think we always think about, we always apply it when we're working with adults. I mean, I was with a, a, a colleague and, and, uh, and then we're going to do this in the current grant. We want to select measurable targets and we want to graph data and we want to uh, give uh, individuals their data. 
Um, and one of my colleagues was really nervous about it. She's like, you know, they, that's going to make them not want to do the grant. And a part of me uh, speaks to, well, why not? Right. This idea of where are, I mean, I think you have to sell the narrative, but teaching, there's not good or bad teachers, right? Just like there's no good or bad students. It's teachers that are performing skills at, at teaching skills at acceptable levels. And so if we, if we can paint the narrative. And so I, when I do a lot of talking across the country, I start out by just saying, look, nobody can do everything correctly. We have so many things happening. You know, I talk about teacher training. I talk about, I often will uh, express jargon that people have never heard of. And these are things that are very common, like constant time delay or functional communication training, and they won't know what it is. And I'll say, that's okay. You know, we've all come from different training programs. And, and so the idea is that, you know, if you stop growing, if you stop adding to your repertoire, that's where you failed. And so um, and anyway, I think that objective approach to building teachers repertoire um, is, is, can, can be really positive for them. I think it lets them off the hook uh, instead of feeling, you know, that they're judged for being a teacher. Behavior analysts, and I've, I've been a part of many, many meetings, but even before I was board certified, where, I, where behavior analysts would come in with a parent, you know, and kind of lay out all these value judgments about, you know, this teacher not doing a good job or, and, and because teachers get into this field, you know, to help people, I think, you know, they take it very personally. And I get, I, again, I think we have to change the narrative to this, like, you have an almost impossible job, but we're going to add skills to your repertoire. Are you willing to sign on? And if we can get them that way, I think that it, it's a much more effective approach. Yeah, you make really good points about the objectivity, and that's something that, of course, is so unique, or not not unique, but such a, um, um, a foundational part of our what we do is as scientists, as behavioral analysts, is we, we look at the science, we look at the data, we look at what direction it's going in, and we try to be really objective. Somehow that feels different when we think about adults, right? Or when we think about our colleagues or our friends, our neighbors, and... The reality is, you know, we, I once had a behavior analyst, Jessica Menahan, who said you're 50% of every interaction. So if yeah. something's going south, I think that kind of relates to that, you know, the Skinner saying of like, the rat is always right, or the learner is always yeah. right. Um, and you've done a nice job of articulating that in this case, the teacher would be our learner. And so, yeah, they're right. So figure, figure out what you're going to do about the environment to kind of help them be effective. And that's what I heard you say. Yeah, you know, it's really, it's almost humorous because I reflect back on when I was younger and did this of, of working with colleagues and behavior analytic colleagues who, you know, they, they, they'll flip right back into that mentalistic terminology when they've failed to change a teacher's behavior. You know, it's like they've tried, this teacher's not responding. And then, you know, it's like, oh, they're lazy. They're obstinate. They don't want to do a good job. They don't care about kids. Uh, and, 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 you know, and people do it, right? Because it, it helps us escape, you know, our accountability for that process. And that's, and, and you know, that's not what behavior analysis analysis is, is, is all about. And, and teaching, changing teacher behavior is hard work. And so I, I, I never, um, I, I was in a, at ABBA last year and there was a talk and there was a great panel with some really esteemed and talented colleagues. They're talking about working in schools. And, the, and there were a lot of students. They were most, I think they're mostly doctoral students and graduate students in, the, in this session. And, and you can hear their frustration. They were like, but what if they just don't listen? 
you know, and, and I, you know, you would never say that about a student. You would never say that about a four-year-old with autism. Well, what if he just doesn't listen, right? You would keep working it. You would keep trying different strategies. You'd look at your data, then you'd change something else. And so, uh, I think it just speaks to the difficulty of working in schools. And I, again, I really celebrate those folks that are out there doing a good job in schools uh, because it is, pro it is tough work. Well, you also made another point that I think connects to your earlier statement. You're teaching at uh, the university level. You're teaching undergraduate classes well, you had mentioned and said that that's fun. That's, that's different. Um, what is it like and how are you going to, um, impart your knowledge on them without overwhelming them, <laughs> I guess. But like, how do you, how do you train um, or what do you do to be a part of kind of um, helping to set the occasion for stronger people entering the workforce, whatever profession? You know, um, I, I think we underestimate, so that, again, this is just in my opinion, but I think we underestimate what undergraduates can handle in the teaching profession, right? Um, I, you look at a lot of undergraduates in psychology and other programs, and the course that they take is people have no qualms of diving into some deep content with them, right? And so um, when I was at UofL, I, I took on teaching verbal behavior to undergrads. And of course, we didn't read Skinner's verbal behavior text, but you know, and they were, but they were able to get it, and they were, and they grew from it. And I could hear them talking about. Um, kind of the verbal operants in terms of how to build repertoires in children. They, they started think, think applying it to their own behavior. Like it was pretty powerful. And so one, one thing I guess is to, is to have high expectations, right? For these individuals. And I think that you break it down with repetition. You're very clear in your instructional approach. You give them lots of practice. Uh, and I think they can get it. So I'm teaching behavior management. Um, and, you know, I'm teaching it like, a, you know, applied behavior analysis. Yes, we're going to cover whole classroom strategies, but we're, we've, we're spending the first couple of weeks just talking about the very basic principles where, um, you know, I, I wrote a text a little bit ago that was, that was about, you know, is applied behavior analysis for everyone, really, really light text. So I've caught a couple of chapters from that. I've got a couple chapters from Alberto and Troutman, some readings, and we're spending a lot of time just breaking down the three-term contingency. And it's so great seeing their eyes light up like, what? Like, is this why this is happening? And so I think, I think it's okay to spend a little bit of time with undergraduates, really getting into the the underpinnings, those, those foundational principles. Whereas I think in teacher prep programs, oftentimes we're really worried about um, make, well, or sometimes I think we skip those things to make sure they have all the, all the tactics. And I think that's important because, you know, as we're seeing, again, shorter teacher education programs, people want to make sure they get everything in. But I believe that with a, a solid understanding of, of the principles, right? You can be a lot more reflex, uh, more, more flexible, excuse me, in response to the individual's needs. I think that you um, not wing it, but I think the individuals can uh, just make changes to the environment that are logical and make sense. They don't have to know the name of every single procedure. Now they're getting some of that in my, in my course, but I think that um, that's, the, that's the approach we're taking undergraduate and um, again I don't know so we've only been and next week will be our second week of classes 
uh, but so far they're hanging with me and I haven't scared them too much. And so, uh, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. I think I started rambling there a little bit, Amanda. Oh, I think it's just fine. And you answer the question, however, best suits you. The thing that I took away from what you said, Rob, is, you know, raise our expectations. And these are things that for those of us who have worked with young children or individuals with autism or related disabilities, uh, we already know that. We know to break things down. We know to pair. We know to reinforce. We know to shape. We know to change the environment. We know to go home and reflect and revise and come back and do it again differently. But I think, like you said, there's sort of that, that disconnect with adults. And so raising the bar is a really good part. Now, you mentioned writing a text. You, you mentioned creating a tool. Um, you've mentioned some of those contributions and publications. Can you delve a little bit deeper into any of those resources or something that people might be able to go to later? Um, yeah, I guess so. I don't want to make this a, you know, a commercial for stuff. But um, so, yeah, so we, the, about two months ago, we, I was approached by the, the AAPC, the Autism Asperger Press out of Kansas, um, and uh, Brenna Smith-Miles, she said, hey, we would like a book on uh, applied behavior analysis in our, in our kind of repertoire, I guess. And I said, well, the, all the great books are already out there. You don't need another book. Uh, and she she was great and said you write it any way you want so i started writing the book myself and then realized i was in a move and i was like i'm never gonna get this done so i was able to recruit a bunch of wonderful colleagues um and i wrote some of the chapters myself and um the whole idea was i want you to write to a very lay audience in any way that you want so that's that's what the book is so it's several it's it's uh, multiple chapters on all the kind of basic um behavioral uh content i think and and uh people are able to write to a lay audience and kind of have their own approach so i have some really great people i have matt tincani talking about verbal behavior and communication instruction i have melinda alt you know from Woolery alton doyle 1992 doing the systematic instruction piece uh i have uh, greg hanley greg did his version of functional behavior assessment or functional assessment and it's an amazing chapter uh but anyway we have it so I did this other activities, the, the classroom, all, all, um, the autism low instance classroom observation tool. Um, we made that because we wanted a very quick and dirty way to uh, assess what's happening in a classroom and kind of give teachers a way to uh, technical assistance providers, a way to assess a program uh, for coaching purposes. And then teachers are a way for them to kind of self monitor, um, We've written a lot of papers, myself and team, on just basic instructional. In the last couple of years, we had one on extinction. We had one on, on, on just baiting procedures after functional communication training. Um, something I'm really proud of last year is for teaching exceptional children, which you know is the uh, CEC's uh, practitioner journal that kind of goes out to everyone. I had the great opportunity to um, pull together a special issue on applied behavior analysis. And so in that issue, we have some amazing um, writers uh, that wrote very practical pieces for, for educators, some that should be in their wheelhouse, like things like response prompting and how you promote generalization to others that might be new for them. So some folks, uh, Wayne Fisher's team wrote a great paper on treating elopement. We had uh, Catherine Peterson, uh, 
write something on feeding, uh, treating feeding disorders. And these are things that um, I think that teachers may not initially get in their programs. So that came out, we're, we're really excited just because the, re the readership is so large and people can have access to that. So the whole, I guess, I do a lot of uh, experimental single case research, but I'm also really happy that all the things that I've mentioned recently, that I mentioned to you just now, were, were ways to be able to kind of disseminate the science uh, and, and get basic principles to practitioners in a way that they can understand, a way that can be useful for them. Well, thank you. I mean, being a scientist is necessary and needed. We need really good evidence demonstrated in the research, but we also need to find a way to get that into the hands of those who need it the most, which would be the teachers, the parents, the caregivers, the behavior analysts, and anyone else who's interested in, in learning about these areas that you've described. So it's, thank you, Rob. I think it's incredibly um, advantageous to our field to not only have that knowledge, but to have it disseminated so people can access that knowledge. Of course, that's a big mission of mine. Um, before we end today, I just want to, again, thank you for your persistence. The audience may not know, but we have uh, lots of technical difficulties. Um, but seeing as you're a musician, you might be used to some of those things having happened in the past. And <laughs> before we end today, I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about uh, I know that's that's kind of a, a setup there, a little bit about a great big passion, but uh, tell us a little bit about about your music and what that seems like for you today. Oh yeah, so I grew up in kind of the the punk scene, I guess, and um, it's really funny because my students see me as a big nerd, and I, I mean I am a big nerd, but every now and then they'll uh, do a little search on me and and say what, <laughs> you know, like see this, see and my worlds collide. Uh, yeah, so I've been playing in bands for about 30 years. I've probably put out 50 different records, um, mostly punk hardcore stuff with a big kind of social justice twinge. Uh, I have, it's really funny over the last, you know, decade or so, actually a couple decades, my work has bled into the songs that we write. We've had songs about uh, students that I've worked with. I've my wife and I played in a, a band once called Minnow that just put out a couple records. And we had a song about B.F. Skinner, uh, a recent band I was in called Black God. We had this song called Kaufman that was kind of about the uh, postmodernism creep, uh, uh, creep into uh, education and, uh, and its negative impacts. I mean, it's, it's, it's really nerdy stuff, but uh, it's fun. Like, I, I, again, it, I was raised in Kentucky and Kentucky's a great, especially Louisville can be a great, is a great place to live, but it is very isolated. So that scene exposed me to lots of other important um, things. And so I was able to meet with other young kids that wanted to um, push a little bit, push back. Uh, and then as bands that I was in became more popular, I had the opportunity to tour I uh, was able to tour the United States a lot and spend time with people that um, had different experiences, people of different colors, people of different backgrounds. Um, and I don't know if that would have happened if I didn't find punk rock. You know, I, we were in Europe about two years ago playing and, you know, every time I go there, uh, you know, I, I've, I learn more, you know, we were spent time uh, in Krakow, you know, and we hung out with some Polish kids whose grandparents, you know, were, involved in the Holocaust and they talked about things from their experiences. And uh, um, I don't know, it's just been, a, it's really amazing. I miss, since I've come to Louisville, 
or, or excuse me, come to Charlotte. I haven't had about as many opportunities to play music. So I'm playing music now with my wife and our department chair, uh, uh, which is pretty exciting. And then I'm in a band, uh, lots of bands, but one of the bands that were around for a long time was a band called By the Grace of God, not a religious band. Uh, but we put out a record last year and are going to work on another one. So we will probably get the fly back to Louisville, record, and then, you know, do some one-offs every now and then. So it, it's super fun. It's also really fun. There are a lot of punks, uh, our grown up punks are still punks and behavior analysis, which is pretty cool. It's more and more uh, people have come out of the woodwork where I'm like, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, it, funny, Matt Tincani and I played shows together. We didn't know, uh, he was in a band in the late 80s, early 90s, and it wasn't until later in my career, I was like, hey, wait, you were in this band. And so uh, uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. Behavior analysts and our other side, right? Like what That's we, right. our previous lives, our current lives, or just the part that maybe like you said, your students don't know. And then when they find out, they're like, who is Dr. Pennington after all? That's um, right. And you're quite, you know, a diverse, uh, comical and patient person. So Rob, I just want to thank you again for joining today and for agreeing to be on Behavior Babes podcast. No, thanks a lot for the opportunity. It's great to talk to you, Amanda. And for anyone else who's interested in learning more about what we discussed here today or more about applied behavior analysis, you can visit www.behaviorbabe.com.